like the Stranger Things <laughs> soundtrack. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, that has been a, uh, a ser- it's actually a sermon. It's, it's teaching the Bible on what the Bible teaches around uh, believers, Christians that have uh, given their life to the Lord. What is, what's life going to be like for us after this one? Uh, if you know Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he says, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy it. So store up treasure up there. And there will be a judgment, if you will, around giving those rewards out, the ones that we stored up in heaven. Uh, and so that's the theatrical or really creative way to deliver that sermon, Pastor Mark Harris. He's done it a few times, once probably, well, this must have been 15 years ago. It's powerful. It's a, you know, it's a little creative, theatrical way to, to teach this part of the Bible. It's a real couple passages of scripture that he's going to teach on. And you don't want to miss it. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be in Appleton and then broadcast here and, and, and in Appleton as well. And it's a very, um, it's going to be cool. I think the team's even planning some pretty cool stuff with this room to kind of make it a pretty cool experience. Don't miss it. Next week, the week after, two different messages, part one, part two. All right. So uh, I'm going to get into it here. My uh, childhood included uh, a lot of space and NASA stuff. I don't know if you guys were into that. I loved it. I still love it. Never good at it. Like science and math were never something I was good. I was like the basketball player that like loved basketball but was terrible at it. And I was the same with math and science and space stuff. But I loved the, the wonder and the curiosity of just the vast expanse of our solar system. But as I would share this with people and as I just, you know, kind of would talk about my hobby and, you know, go into, you know, get, get reading about this stuff, I, it's one of the feedback that I got from someone. It kind of took me off guard a little bit. I was all caught off guard by it, but I understood what they were saying. They said, you know, the whole space thing is such a waste of money. And of course, I kind of heard that and I was a little taken back by it. But they're like, you know, it's just a waste because we had all these problems down here we have all the injustice down here. We got issues down here. And we're sending these rockets up and we're, you know, looking at telescopes to see these faraway places that really don't change or do anything for the real problems down here. And I remember, you know, I was kind of, I was, I had not heard that before. So I can get how they got there. I mean, I could probably argue why there's still good scientific progress that's been made that helps people down here. But um, maybe, maybe you've heard that. The same argument is made against religion for people believing in some sort of blissful paradise or heaven. I don't know if you've heard that one. It is made by mostly secular philosophers and sociologists, but they'll say, you know, if we could delete people's concept of a life after this one, it would make this world better. People would be less concerned about trying to store up, you know, this treasure in heaven, kind of like getting ready for that beam of seat thing. We, they would be less concerned about trying to get, you know, life after death ready. They'd be more focused on fixing the problems down here, you know, helping the environment, helping the, the, the poverty, the injustice issues down here that we have. They'd be more focused on this. Otherwise, um, they won't care. And, and you know, the, you've heard the phrase, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? This idea that if you believe in heaven so much and you're so concerned about it, 
you'll, you'll think that just any progress made on earth here is like rearranging deck chairs on a sinking ship. That's kind of the argument. And I just want to ask the question, if that's, so tr- if that's true, if, that's, if, if, you know, if you were to espouse that view, we've got to ask, why then does the Bible spend so much real estate telling us about heaven, talking about what heaven's like, and even Jesus, it's in his top five things that he talked about and taught on was heaven. Why would God, why would God be so concerned about us having a good picture and understanding of heaven if it wasn't going to make a difference down here? Well, the, the book in the Bible, maybe you're familiar with this if you're familiar with it. It's the last book in the Bible. This is the book of the Bible where there's probably the most uh, uh, space given to what heaven is like. And if you've ever tried to read it, it's called Revelation. It's at the end of the book, book of the, um, it's the last book of the Bible. And the guy that wrote it, his name is John. And if you've ever read it, you've probably, <laughs> it's very, it's got a lot of, um, descriptions of heavenly stuff. It not only describes these creatures and these beings and these angelic beings in heaven, but it also uh, describes the end of the world, like when the Bema Seed thing happens, like what happens when all this is kind of over and God comes to judge everybody and there's this end of the world, uh, these end of the world events. And you could easily read it and be like, man, this, this reads like somebody was smoking some stuff. It is just a wild kind of description. It's hard to even picture what he's talking about. So the best way for me to try to help you understand this is you got to imagine, like, for example, if you and I went back in a time machine to pick up an ancient Jew from the first century, we put him in the DeLorean time machine, and we transported him back to today. And we put him in, let's say, a brand new Mercedes G-Wagon, G-Class Mercedes. And we put him in there and we drove him around Hortonville for an hour. And then we, we got him out. And then we put him back in the, in the DeLorean space-time thing. And we sent him back to ancient Israel, first century ancient Israel. And we released him into the wild to describe to people what his experience was. And you could only imagine how he would try to do it. He would say, well, I got into this chariot and it had 12 lions that roared in the front. And it had eyes all around it that could see all around it and little birdies that would tweet from cages inside when you got too close to other chariots. And there was a, there was a little mini, there was a pond of water but the surface was like hard and flat. And it was like a window to an ocean of other worlds, right? And there was this little fire-breathing dragon out the back. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was filled with these little cages where little people would play instruments of any kind of music you want. You know, this is probably like how he would try to describe to the people that he lives with what he experienced here. He's using ancient language to describe, you know, 21st century experience. In the same way, God is inspiring this book. God wrote this book through John's pen, but John is using the raw material that he has. He's using ancient language, ancient uh, symbol or ancient metaphors to describe 
not metaphors. He's using ancient terms to describe heavenly beings and experiences. So you've got to recognize that when you're reading this. But he describes this revelation, which is why it's called that. He describes heaven. And God is authoring this book through John, and he's describing what he's seen. And I want to just read us. I want to read us a good portion of this just to kind of get a picture of what heaven will be like. So I'm going to pick up in the first verse of chapter 21 in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. There is a whole nother universe that John is describing that will be coming down that we'll live in. He goes on, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end is what that means. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then he goes on to describe further. I'm going to skip ahead to uh, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is, the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or a light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we know a few things about heaven. We don't know everything, but we know a few things. We know it will not be this ethereal dream state that's just this smoky, you know, really mystical experience. It'll be physical. There'll be physical things we're going to eat, we're going to drink. There'll be musical instruments. Um, we have five senses here on earth. How many will we have in heaven? We don't know. We know that there'll be work. I mean, work is not the product of sin. Work is something that's exciting. It gives you a chance to build and do things. There'll be all kinds of really cool experiences. And one of the things that's going to be interesting, interesting is all the things that God could choose to leave behind here on earth about your body and about you, of all the things he could leave behind, 
the two things he doesn't leave behind is your skin color and your language. Check this out. This is Revelation chapter 7. This is John's experience. He sees this. As he looked, he saw this great multitude. No one can count from every nation and tribe. How do you see that? How do you see nation and tribe? You see people's skin colors, right? People and language. There's languages there. He's hearing these languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Surely you didn't think that when you got to heaven, everybody would be white and speak English. It's this beautiful picture of all of the uh, d- diversity of not just the tribes and the, and the nations that exist today, but of all those who've ever called God their God that exists throughout history. And some theologians debate this, but they say it'll take every language that's ever existed throughout all of human history to even begin to scratch the surface to proclaim the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. We're going to need all the languages to even begin to describe who God is. A 26-letter alphabet's not going to do it justice. There's gonna, it's just this beautiful picture of the, this diversity and unity and community in heaven and all the dysfunction passed out, passed, has passed away. Why does John get called to write this down? To answer that question, you gotta look at the context a little bit of why Revelation was written. You see, every book in the Bible has a task God doesn't ask one of his authors to, 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 he doesn't inspire the author to write down these words simply to increase your knowledge, for you to come today and be a little bit smarter about God's stuff. There's always a task. There's always a problem that needs dealt with. And so God, right into that, he speaks. And the problem that the, that the church was facing when John write, is writing this is incredible, unspeakable, and unprecedented persecution. The Roman emperor is not only declaring himself to be God, which wasn't terribly unusual, but he's enforcing it now. And this, is the, this is debatably the most persecuted church in existence up to this point. This is the Colosseum days. The, 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 literally, Christians are being torn apart, imprisoned, killed for their faith, scattered. And in the middle of all that pain and suffering... Heaven, a picture of revelation of heaven and eternity. Why? Because you can't endure suffering, you can't endure persecution, you can't endure pain without that kind of hope that comes from heaven. One of the things I do, and it drives my wife nuts, and I, I, I don't know why I do this, but um, as CEO of the remote control in our house, that's my job. I do it. It's the, someone's got to do it. I'll take one for the team. As the, as the guy that always is monit- holding the remote, uh, I will do this. And it's usually when I'm watching a movie that where the hero, and, and it's usually a hero-type movie where, the, where there's a, you know, Avengers, Marvel-type stuff. You know this. There's a part usually in the beginning, the first third, where the hero has their back against the wall. That is bad. And there is no hope. It is, everything has been exhausted. 
and, and you know, midway through the movie, it's, it's just bad. And I don't know what, what psychology as a kid I experienced that made this happen, but what I have to do just to get through it is I get up the remote right at that point, beep, and I hit pause. Because I just have to know, I just have to see where that little indicator is on the timeline of the movie. I got to know there's still time, right? There's still time for him to get out of this, for Batman to pick himself up off the floor and save Gotham, right? There's just, there's still time. I have to do it. I don't know what it is. And Hannah knows it's coming now. She kind of like look over me when things get really bad and I'm like, (sighs) (laughs) but I got to do it because it gives me some hope that this is not the end of the movie. It's not the end of the story. What this book is, what revelation is for for the Christian, for the believer, is the pause button. Is to remind us this suffering that we're in, this right here, is not the end of the movie. It's not the end of the story. And, and sometimes just opening this book up, reading about heaven, reading about what's to come, that one day every tear, not most of them, all of it, is going to be wiped away permanently. There's going to be resolution. There's going to be justice. There's going to be healing. It's coming. This is our pause button. This is what God gives to his people in first century uh, Israel when they're being persecuted to say, hey guys, in the scheme of eternity, you're worried about this right here. If this is eternity and this is this is your lifetime. You're worried about this right here. And you got to remember this. this. This gets you through this. You know, I just, I'd, I'd ask you this. Let's take the opposite of this idea that there is a heaven. Let's, let's take the secular um, philosopher's recommendation that really this is all there is. Just earth, right here. This is it. Your life here on earth. This is all there is. Can I ask you a question? Is that better? Is there more hope in that? That, that really these 90, 100 years here on earth, whatever you're going to get, this is it. And then it's over. There's, there's no, you don't, you can't endure suffering with that. There's no hope in that. There's no, there's no hope in that. Like, heaven forbid, I mean, heaven forbid, you have a bad couple years of chemo. I mean, heaven forbid, you have, a, you have a bad couple years of a rocky marriage. You give up. If you only got this many, and, and you have to give up this many in pain or any kind of loss or suffering, there's no hope. There's no hope for that. But if this is a, is a mere fraction of, of this on a line that doesn't end, of which most will be no tear, no suffering, no pain. I can get through this. Let me ask you another question. This gets to the next point. If, if this is all you got, if, if they're right, there's no heaven, it's just this, it's just earth. Here's my question to you. Well, why would you bother? Why would you bother helping people out who, who, are, who are poor? Be generous with your, with your time or your money or helping those in need. Why would you, why... What's the point of that? Why would you do that? 
if this is all you got and there's nothing, there's nothing after this life, why wouldn't you just do whatever you can to maximize your own pleasure, your own comfort, your own, what you want out of this world? Why would you give anything away to help anybody else? Why would you have? This is it. This is all there is. This is this world. That's it. You know, one of the things that we learn from the Bible, from Scripture, is that people who are going to be in heaven, people who are going to heaven, are deeply concerned about making this world better for those particularly who are experiencing the worst of this world. Like I said, we don't, we don't know, we don't know a lot. I mean, we don't know everything about what heaven will be like. We don't know all that there is. We know, we, know, we know a good amount, but we don't know everything. But one of the things we know, we actually have recorded in the Bible the scene, the moment that God separates people who are going to heaven and people who are not. That actually, the moment that that actually takes place is recorded in the Bible. That scene, that moment. And it's not coming, you know, through, through an author like John or, or whatever. It's actually Matthew writing down the exact words of Jesus. He's writing, the, Matthew's recording Jesus' own teaching on this. So this is coming from Jesus. And Jesus actually describes, he actually gives us the exact scene, that moment when there's the heaven people and the hell people. That, there's a moment that that's going to happen and Jesus tells it to us. And this is actually, I'm going to read it to you. This is in chapter 25, verse 30, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? What's after this? For what? For what? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or, or needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison or go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. For you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Now that's hard to read. It's hard to hear. You should never talk about hell without a tear in your eye. But... What we know is that you can't interpret um, a passage like that without the whole Bible. So you're, you don't want to build your theology around one passage of Scripture. You build your theology of God around what the whole of the Bible says and all of Jesus' teaching. And one thing that's clear from all of Jesus' teaching is that you don't get into heaven. It might be the byproduct of a follower of God, a follower of Jesus, but you don't get there by doing, by building 
by, by you know, working on anything. You, you, don't, you don't get to heaven on your own ability. You, you can't open enough orphanages to just get into heaven based on that alone. If that were true, why would God need to come and die? Why would Jesus need to go to the cross? I mean, that is so, something had to be terribly wrong for God to come down here and die on a cross. You can't get there by doing anything. There'd be no reason for him to come and die if he could. So what is it saying? It's not saying you get to heaven by doing those things. But the people who have been changed and, and come to know God and his forgiveness and his grace and the inheritance of all of, again, if this is eternity and this is your life, they have all of this. Those people are naturally and deeply concerned about those in this world who have nothing and making their world better and going right into it. And I just want to tell you something. If you tell yourself that you don't have to do those things to get to heaven in a way that's trying to make you feel good about not caring about the poor, about not caring about people in need, if you're kind of running that tape, even though it's true, if you're telling yourself that to get you out of the responsibility and the call on a believer's life to care about the poor, can I just tell you something? That's the game you're playing. Those are the stakes, heaven and hell. Those are the stakes you're playing with your, your mental gymnastics. No, you, you don't need to do good works to get into heaven, but let me tell you something. The evidence of a person who knows that they have this in God, they've got eternity with God covered, their eternal destiny is that the byproduct of those people. They care about people in need. They care about making this world a better place deeply. Here's what, here's what the Bible is telling. And this is, this is what so much of Scripture says this in so many words. That without an understanding of heaven and, and what it, I mean, Jesus even saying, store up treasure in heaven. I want you to be... I want you to be greedy. I want you to be a hoarder about treasure in heaven. That's Jesus' words. I want you to store it up, hoard it in heaven. And the people that are doing that, that are concerned about heaven, are people that are empty in their lives down here for those who have nothing. And, and I gotta be honest with you, it brings incredible purpose into pain, doesn't it? Suffering. When people are in suffering, when there's pain in the world right now, which is pain everywhere, all of a sudden now, Jesus is there. Because every time you and I take a step toward it to try to serve or be involved and just love people in the pain or the tragedy or the difficulty, now there's purpose. There's no higher purpose than Jesus, than God himself. But he's right now in the middle of pain. Every time you go into it, there's purpose in pain now with this. You, can't, you can endure pain, but knowing there's purpose in it. If you're going through it, there's God in it somewhere. You know, I, this is what the Bible's saying. If you aim to maximize your life here on earth, if that's the target on the wall, you're aiming for earth, honestly, you're probably not gonna get it. Think about it. The person that's trying to maximize their comfort, their own pleasure, me, 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 I, 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 all on earth here, guess what they're going to feel when they get to the end of their life and they look around and no one's around? It wasn't worth it. It was a waste. It's pointless. But the people that aim for heaven, aim to 
make deposits in their bank account in heaven up there, those people emptying their life down here to store up up there, guess what? When they get to the end of their life and they look around at all the people that they loved and gave their life to, you know what they're gonna feel? They're gonna feel quite wealthy. And when they walk into heaven, they'll be royalty. Look, you aim for earth, you're not only not gonna get heaven, but you're not gonna get earth. You aim for heaven, you get both earth and heaven. You're never gonna aim for it though if you don't have an appetite for it. And you need to hear this, the best part about heaven, the best part of it, we read about it, I just wanted you to paint the picture. The best part of heaven is God. I mean, if you for a second, if you just imagine this incredible blissful comfort, all the comforts of whatever you think is in heaven, but take God out of it, you know what that place is called? That place is hell. This is what that place is called. God is the best. If you're looking forward to anything in heaven more than God, I don't even know if you know him. He is the best part of heaven. I mean, yeah, you should be thrilled about no more suffering and pain, but the best by far is that Jesus is there. You'll be with God. He's there. You get to be with him and talk to him. And you don't, there's, no, there's no confusion or sin in the way that kind of messes up your understanding or you can you know, actually be in his presence. That's the best part about heaven. And what the Bible tells us is that the best part of heaven, you don't have to wait for. Probably read this verse a lot around Christmas time. It's in Matthew chapter one goes like this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him God with us. You know, um, if, if heaven, if the best part of heaven is just a place, then really your, your faith, your religion is just, a, is just a ticket to a place, right? I mean, if your whole theology of, of your faith in Scripture is that it's some sort of ticket, you got to punch your ticket, first of all, that's, that's very transactional, right? That's not relational. The gospel is relational. Transactional asks, what's the bare minimum? How, what's the cheapest price I could get this thing at? That's what, that's what ticket theology is. If that's all your theology is of heaven, then, then really your faith is just, what's the bare minimum I have to pay? What's the bare minimum amount I have to give to the poor, clothe the naked, feed the sick, uh, help the thirsty? What's the bare minimum I got to do? That's ticket thinking, okay? And the, and the worst part about ticket thinking is this, is you got to wait, right? You got to wait to cash that in. This world here is just a waiting room. It's a waiting line. But the, but the Bible tells us that you don't have to wait. Jesus gave up his ticket to heaven. He gave up the place. He didn't want the place without you in it. So he comes down to earth and he chooses to die on a cross so that not just that you can go to a place, but that you can have God with you even right now. Because that's what it is to be a believer is to have God, a relationship with him right now, working, living, talking, being, in your life today, right now. The best part of heaven, you don't gotta wait for. Because Emmanuel, God with us, that's not, God, God being with you is not his, it's not a, a, a task on his to-do list. It's not something he does. It's not even his job. It's his name. 
He identifies himself as with you. It's his identity. And think about that. Hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Brian. What's your name? My name is, I'm with Brian. I'm with you. That's my name. That's, what I, that's who I am. I want to be with you. What that means is where God goes, you go. And where you go, God goes. Doesn't matter the suffering. Doesn't matter how bad it is down here. Doesn't matter even how big of a regret or, or a mistake it is that you made. God is somehow going to be with you through it all. Why? It's his name. It's his identity, Emmanuel, God, with you. And that's why, and that's why the Apostle Paul, from prison, from prison can write this in Philippians chapter 1. This is why the Apostle Paul writes this. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful ministry, fruitful labor. But what shall I choose? I don't know. Who says, I don't know? I don't, I'm torn. Who says that between heaven and a third world prison? The worst the world can offer, right? In unjustly imprisoned, suffering. Who says they're torn? Like they don't know which to choose from. Unless the best part of heaven is right there in the prison, in the pain, in the suffering with Paul. See, the gospel tells us this, that you can endure the worst of earth with the best of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, this world is full of pain. It's, it's, all, it's pain. I mean, that's most of it. We get these bright spots of comfort. Some of us live in the... In the we, we live here, Lord, in a part of the world where we actually expect comfort. Most of the world doesn't expect comfort. They expect pain, and whenever they have a couple good stretches of comfort, they're just thrilled about it. Lord, most of the world is pain. So God, I pray that we would have found hope today being reminded that the best of heaven can sit with us and that you can come down right and get in the middle of it and be with us, God with us. Thank you. And then Lord, give us hope that the amount of years we have ahead of us are so many, so innumerable, we may not even remember some of the years down here. Help us to press pause today and look up and have hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand while we read the closing benediction? This is from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He writes, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.